0: Welcome to Growing You, part of LaGraves Adult Education Program. In this session, we hear from Professor James Smith as he leads us in the questions about our heart. Are the things that we love or think we love truly the desires of our heart? How are those desires formed? And are there ways for us to make adjustments? And now, Professor James Smith's Love Takes Practice practice takes community. Great. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be
1: here at La Grave. I always kind of think of it as the cathedral church of the CRC. So, uh, And uh, I, it was fun to hear a little snippet of uh, Peter this morning. I live about three blocks that way, so I was. if I was braver, I would have walked, but it's a little chilly this morning. Um, I I, I to basically try to summarize a book for you in about 35 minutes. So I'm going to dive right in uh, but uh, because I want to leave time for conversation uh, and some questions. Um, Let me, let me, I also, sorry, I'm a very low-tech person and don't use PowerPoint ever. So um, uh, I don't have any pretty pictures or bullet points, but I'm going to give you three themes that we're going to work through to see if this helps you understand the trajectory of where we're going. Here's three theses, if you will, three axioms. Worship is the heart of discipleship. That's ultimately the argument I want to make this morning, okay? That worship, collective, gathered, communal, sacramental worship is the heart of discipleship. But the way I want to make that pitch, that argument to you, is by thinking through two other principles or themes or claims. The first is this. You are what you love. You are what you love. You are not defined by what you think. You are not even defined by what you believe. You are defined and oriented and moved and driven by what you want, by what you long for, by what you love. You are what you love. And then this second rather uncomfortable challenge you might not love what you think. You are what you love, but you might not love what you think. And in the space between those two uncomfortable uh, uh, challenges is actually where I want to spend some time this morning. And the way I want to do it is, I'm definitely going to trip over this at some point. I want to I try to invoke, I'll call it um, a cinematic parable. Parable. Uh, I want to create a scene for you. It comes from a film by the Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. You will have not seen this movie. Almost certainly. It's called Stalker. Has anybody seen Stalker by Andrei? G- That's fine. You don't have to have seen the movie. Because really, there's this like just really interesting plot line that I find is such a great parable of the challenge we're talking about. Here's, it's a very, very simple story. There are three key characters... The writer, the professor. I'm a sucker for this movie, all right. The writer, the professor, and then this character called the stalker, which sounds scarier than it should. I think there's something lost in the translation from the Russian here. Let's just call him the guide. Okay? So the stalker, the guide. You've got the writer, the professor, and the stalker, the guide. And they live, they inhabit this sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland in, in some godforsaken part of Russia, and something cataclysmic has happened, and it looks like a bombed-out scene. But writer and professor have got word of this very, very special oasis somewhere in this wasteland that is simply called the Zone. And in the Zone is, uh, it sounds very Soviet in a way, right? In the zone is flourishing and life and green and heartbeats and and there's, there's a life there. And here's what they really want to get to is this place called the room. So within, the, if you can make it to the zone, in the zone is this special place called the room. Tarkovsky's not super descriptive in how he comes up with things because here's why you want to get to the room. In the room, you will get exactly what you want. In the room. If you can make the arduous trek through this wasteland and you can get to the zone, and then if you can find your way to this room, if you can just get inside the room, you will get exactly your heart's desire. You will achieve exactly what you long for. And so a lot of the film is following this trek, this arduous journey as the stalker, the guide, leads them into the oasis that is called the zone. And then finally they get to the room. When they make it to the room, stalker turns to the writer and the professor. He says, all right, we made it. This was the goal. As soon as you step into that room, you will get exactly what you want. Who wants to go first? Both writer and professor halt. They waver. They falter. They hesitate. They don't want to enter the room. And you're like, what? Why would that be the case? Isn't isn't that the whole point? I mean, this is why you did all this. This is because you want to get to this room, because this is where you're going to get what you want. So you made it. You can have everything you want. All you have to do is step into this room. And neither of them wants to do it. What's going on here? So indulge me, one this is this is a, a great little book about this movie by Jeff Dyer. The book is called Zone. I, I need better hobbies, I realize, because I'm talking to you about a book, about a movie that nobody has seen. But This is a really, really great description of the scene and also the dynamic that interests me. This is a dire. They are in a big, abandoned, derelict, dark, damp room with what looks like the remains of an enormous chemistry set floating in a puddle in the middle as if the zone resulted from an ill-conceived experiment that went horribly wrong. Off to the right, this works well, off to the right through a large, large hole in the wall is a source of light that they all look towards. And for a long while, no one speaks. The air is full of the chirpy, chirpy, cheep, cheep of birdsong. It's the very opposite of those places where the sedge has withered from the lake and no birds sing. Here the birds are whistling and chirping and singing like mad. And so Stalker tells writer and professor, tells us, that they are now on the very threshold of the room. This is the most important moment in your life, he says. Your innermost wish will be made true here. So, who wants to go first? I wonder if you can see what's happening here to writer and professor. They made it. They think they want what they think they want. That's why they came to this room, and now, as they are in the very threshold of the room and step in, here's what's dawning on them. What if I don't want what I think. What actually if I don't even really know what I most ultimately long for? Well, says Dyer, that's for the room to decide. The room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. And so there's this creeping epiphany that's welling up in writer and professor, what are they discovering? They realize, maybe my wants, my deepest longings, my loves, my desires, are not what I have chosen, but what I have learned unconsciously. In other words, they are realizing, they are walking into the space where they realize, oh man, there might be a gap between what I think I love, what I say I love, what I believe I love, and what I live to love, what I've learned to love. Do you, can you feel the gap, the tension between that? And, and I think this is, this is a dynamic that is basically, should be very, very familiar to Reformed Christians. Uh, uh, because what we're talking about is sanctification. And the failure of sanctification in some ways. So think of it this way. If I ask you, all good, mature Christians, what do you want? Well, you all know the answer. You know the right answer to that question, right? We're here at the grave. You know exactly what the answer to that question is. It's like the answer to every question in a children's sermon. The answer is always Jesus, right? So you know that's the right answer. And by the way, I'm not being cynical. I believe. I believe us. When we say that answer, I believe that we believe that we want Jesus. The question is, would we want to step into that room? If that room is going to reveal and unveil what I really want, how confident am I that my heart's deepest longings and innermost wishes are actually aligned with what God desires for the world. Do you feel, do you, I was going to say, do you feel me? Do you know, do you know what I'm, do you, do you, can you sense that tension? So a lot of what I'm interested in is how does that come about? How is it that we could be these sort of fragmented, fractured, uh, 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 um, uh, split personalities almost where We feel this gap in tension between what we believe, what we know, what we think, what we affirm, and what we love and long for and desire. Uh, My my great patron saint is St. Augustine, uh, and uh, um, what Augustine would say, and, and Augustine's confessions, by the way, is a long exploration of exactly this dynamic, and what Augustine would say is, really, are you surprised that your own heart is foreign territory, At one point, he looks inside himself, he says, my own soul is terra incognita, uh, incognito. I don't know who I am. And indeed, the scriptures themselves say the human heart is this inscrutable thing that eludes us and sometimes deceives us. And so this is why, um, here's the pivot I think the only way to make sense of and understand why there could be this gap and tension between what we affirm, what we know, what we think, what we believe, and what we love and long for and desire, the way to explain that tension is habit. The only way to actually understand the dynamics of what's going on in our formation and our deformation is if we actually bring the language and lens of habit to understand who we are and how God is at work in our lives. Now, so this is where, if you invite a philosopher, we're going to do a little philosophy. I will cap it at like three and a half minutes if I can, all right? Um, So let's do two things. First of all, Let's think just a little bit about why Scripture so often talks about the heart. The language of the heart is suffused through both the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe the center and seat of who we are. The Bible does not think that we are brains on a stick, right? The Bible does not primarily see human beings as thinkers or knowers or information processors. Whenever the Bible sort of wants to aim at the core of who you are, it always names the heart. Why? Because the heart is the center and seat and engine room of our affections, our longings, our loves, our desires. We are not defined by the thoughts we cogitate in our brain buckets We are moved and motivated and oriented by the longings and desires that govern our hearts. So, right? This is exactly what Proverbs tells us. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from it. That's what we're talking about. Who am I? I am my loves. You are what you love. I am what I love. That's what it means to say that I'm oriented by the heart. Okay, so, the heart is the center of the human person. My loves are what really define me. What is love? <laughs> what is love? Um what, what love in the scriptures is primarily or fundamentally understood as a habit. It's not an emotion. It's not just a kind of emotional magnetic response to things. Our loves are habits. That is, love is a virtue. So, okay, let's let's think about, are are we doing okay? Let's think about this for a second. What is a habit? Uh, we tend to use the language habit for like some external routine that you go through. Do you know what I mean? Like, like um, you know, you might always put on your left sock first or like that's a habit that you do. Or you, you batters in a batter's box always have a very, very this big ritual that they go through. You, let's set aside that notion of habit for a second, and I want to take you to a much more ancient understanding of habit that comes to us from like a philosopher like Aristotle, but then is actually picked up by the Christian tradition, particularly in Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. In this long-standing Christian tradition, a habit is an internal disposition of character. Okay? In other words, a habit is a a learned, acquired disposition, inclination of character, which makes you the kind of person who is inclined to do that without thinking about it. Does that make sense? So it's one of the reasons why we call habits second nature, right? You might sometimes say, oh, that's second nature for her. What we mean is, if it's second nature for her, it so becomes something that is woven into who she is that she couldn't not be the kind of person who does that. In fact, what it means is, she does it without thinking about it. So, if I have acquired the habit, the virtue of compassion, What that means is I've actually been sort of formed to be the kind of person for whom responding compassionately is no longer something that I'm deliberating about. I'm not thinking, I was like, should I be compassionate? Should I not be compassionate? Instead, being compassionate bubbles up, wells up out of my character because now I have been formed in such a way that that is my heart response. It's my gut level response. It's my habitual response. Do you see the difference between that? In a sense, St. Thomas Aquinas would say, if you have to think about whether to be just, if you have to think about whether to forgive, if you have to think about whether to be compassionate, it's a sign that you haven't yet acquired the virtue. Now, let me say this. Thinking about being compassionate is a lot better than just not being compassionate. So that's part of the process, right? There's an arc here. So habits are these dispositions of character We're not talking about instinct. We're not talking about hardwiring. We're talking about things that are learned. And they are inscribed in our character over time so that we are being formed to be the kind of people who respond to the world and to our neighbors in particular kinds of ways, almost by our sort of heart default, if that makes sense. Now, one of the slightly scary things is virtues is the name we give to good habits. The name for bad habits is vices. And vices are learned in exactly the same way. Okay, so now the question is, how do I get these habits, (laughs) right? If the the whole point is to to be formed in Christ, is to become the kind of person for whom the, the virtues of Christ are inscribed in me, how do I get to be that kind of person? Again, this long-standing Christian tradition of thinking about this says there are two primary ways that you learn these habits. You're not born with them. And by the way, you can't uh, acquire them by thinking about it. Which really sucks. I wish that was true. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wish, I wish you could get this book and you could read about habits and then you're like, boom, you walk away and you have the habit. Here's the thing. You can't think your way to holiness. You can't think your way to new habits. Why? There are two ways that we learn these habits. The first, that actually the Christian tradition and and the philosophical tradition has emphasized, is what's called mimesis or imitation, right? You follow the model, like Aristotle would say, if you want to learn how to be just, you imitate the just person. You mimic and model the person who exhibits justice. Now, interestingly, I'm not going to spend as much time on this, but imitation, is that a biblical theme? Absolutely. Think of how often Paul says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Whenever you hear imitation language in the New Testament, it's actually virtue language. It's saying, come and learn this disposition by imitating. And by the way, it's all of us who are parents. So much of what we do is staked on Im- the power of imitation. Mind you, it's also how our children learn vices. That's the really frightening part, right? This is, and you see, all of a sudden, you see your worst aspects in your child. It's like, I wonder where they learned that. Watching. They learned it watching. I want to focus on the second way that we learn these virtues. So one is imitation, mimesis, Modeling. The second is where I want to spend our time: practice. How do you learn these these virtues, these dispositions? How do they get sort of inscribed and and uh, um, cultivated in your heart, habit, through rhythms and rituals and routines that we repeat? over and over again, whereby our heart is subtly learning over time to be oriented in this way rather than that way, okay? How do we learn habits? By doing. It takes practice. And so we give ourselves over to these rhythms and rituals and routines, not because they are teaching us to think about something, but because they are actually sort of Recharacterizing our loves. They are recalibrating our heart compass. They are subtly training us over time to become the kind of people who love this vision of the good life rather than that one. So the, the shorthand term I want to introduce is I want to call those kinds of rhythms, routines, and rituals that train your loves and longings, I want to call those liturgies. small l liturgies. And the reason I want to do that is because I want us to realize that actually there's something ultimate at stake here, right? The rhythms and routines and rituals that train your loves are religious. They're ultimate. They're actually defining who we are. And so these if you think of rhythms, rituals, and routines that, uh, that train our loves and longings over time, if you think of those as liturgies, that's what we mean by the process of habituation. Okay? You are habituating your heart to certain ends. Now, let's try to go back to the room for a second. How is it that writer and professor get to this room where they can have exactly what they long for, what they love, what they want, and they're not sure whether they want to go in. Here's the way I would explain it. They are starting to realize that maybe they have apprenticed their heart to liturgies they weren't aware of, right? Our loves, there's sort of two layers of unconsciousness that we need to bring to the surface for ourselves here. First of all, we might not think about what we love, right? We might not spend enough time reflecting on what we have learned to really long for as ultimate. But secondly, we also are not very attuned to recognizing the kinds of cultural practices that we give ourselves over to, that are rhythms and rituals and routines that are not just something that we do, but they're doing something to us. In other words, we might be spending all kinds of time, Monday to Friday, giving ourselves over to rhythms, rituals, and routines, to liturgies that are actually training us to love something other than the kingdom of God, and something very antithetical to the kingdom of God. So we might confidently come to worship on Sunday and say, we are, you know, what do you want? What do you love? What do you believe? And our answer to the question is coming out of our convictions, but we are ill-attuned to how much our hearts are actually being captivated by rival liturgies, by counter-rituals that are animated by some other kingdom. These are practices that don't just do something to you, that that they're not just something that you do, they do something to you. Let me try to give you a couple of examples. this, this one, uh, think of it this way. Let's say that consumerism is a rival gospel. I want to I just flag one thing. I didn't say capitalism. <laughs> I'm not getting in a fight at the grave about capitalism. I'll just say that. I'm talking about consumerism. Okay. Let's say the gospel of consumerism says this. Stuff will make you happy. Stuff will make you happy. And the gospel of consumerism, there's, there's not a really great apologetics program for the gospel of consumerism, because if somebody says, you know, could you please defend that idea to me? It's insane. It's like, a, it's a ridiculous proposition that stuff could make you happy. We all know that. Does that mean there are no consumerists? Hardly. Does it mean that I'm immune to consumerism? Not at all. Why? Because consumerism as a rival gospel that tells me a fundamentally different story about where meaning and significance and happiness is found, consumerism doesn't work by saying, you know, uh, uh, um, here are the 16 fundamental truths of consumerism, right? Or here's here's how consumerism, there's no tract for consumerism says this is how stuff will change your life. What does consumerism have? it has liturgies, it has rituals, it has a
0: cathedral.
1: It's called Woodland Mall. Do you know what I mean? When my, kid, this is, this, my kids are, you know, my oldest is almost 30 now, but when, when my oldest was uh, in his teens, you know, it was very much like uh, uh, um, at that time you sort of wanted to go with your friends to the mall. And I, I, my one small parenting win is that my son would always slightly mock me and say, Dad, could you take me to the temple? Oh, oh, oh. But I, I do consider it a slight parenting win because even though I was being mocked, what it meant is he remembered a conversation we had in which I said to him this, Woodland Mall is not a neutral site. It is a sacred space. It is a charged atmosphere. It is a cathedral of consumerism that, by the way, is very, very intentionally designed to invite a certain kind of contemplation and wandering and community that is all bent on making me believe that if I could acquire this new shiny thing, I will be happy. uh, uh, Consumerism does not have a great apologetics program, but it does have an incredible uh, 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 evangelism program, which is called marketing. And the only and I'm also I'm not uh, looking at two business prospects. I'm not also not picking on marketing. Uh, What I would say is this: marketers know that we are heart creatures better than the church does, because what does marketing do? Marketing doesn't try to convince your intellect. Marketing doesn't try to provide you with information so that you could come to a you know syllogistic rational conclusion about oh yeah this is the way I should live my life. Marketing says here's a picture, of a world, and a story that you could be in, and everyone there is happy. And what I'm saying, friends, is when we, especially when we unconsciously give ourselves over to those kinds of rhythms and rituals and routines, we don't realize the extent to which our heart habits are being apprenticed to a rival version of the good life, so that when we come up to that door in the room, we're like, what have I learned to love? What do I really want? Have you seen the new Infinity QX55? It is unbelievable. I'm not sure I'm confident in my convictions because my heart's longings have been so apprenticed by these rival liturgies. Does that make sense? Can you feel? So part of, part of what I want to do is I'm trying to get us to see in some ways, I know this is a, feels like a long detour to coming back to the sanctuary, how worship is the heart of discipleship, but I'm actually trying to do it by this detour because the reason why I want us to appreciate what's at stake when we gather around word and table is because I want us to bring new lenses to what's at stake when we are in the world Monday to Saturday. Now notice, I'm not saying don't go into the world. That's hardly the point. What I'm saying is we need to go into our world with eyes wide open and realize that so many of the things that we do are also doing something to us. That's why, you know, when my son said, mocked me and said, dad, will you take us to the temple? To me, that's actually the beginning of saying he knows it's not a neutral space. And that's sort of the beginning, hopefully, of defanging it. Uh, I'm not sure. We could talk about a lot more Uh, Examples. I think, for the sake of time, for the sake of time, uh, I'll just mention a couple. I do think, by the way, this is exactly how to understand what these little desire machines do to us. Okay. Steve Jobs knew that this was a device for transforming desire. It's why he wants us to caress it. It's why it's it's such an intimate thing that we almost can't be untethered from. Why? Not so much because of like, I'm not saying, oh, I'm worried about what you're looking at on your phone. What I'm worried about is the very way that we interact with the world that we are learning with this device is subtly and unconsciously habitually training me to believe that i am the center of the universe and the world should answer to me on my terms when i want it how i want it and because i want it in other words i think this is an egocentrism machine and it is and it's not because of oh somebody i'm it's not because i'm i'm reading content that is telling me to think i'm the center of the universe it's because of the way this thing answers to me I am engaged in a liturgy that is teaching me that I am the Lord. I am the master. And that fundamentally cuts against what Christian discipleship should look like. Now, again, notice, I'm not saying throw away your phone. I'm saying relate to your phone differently. It's about how we relate to these things. The the one other example I'll I'll say is this. Friends, I also think there is no way that we in the United States, and I would say we in the Christian church in the United States, will ever grapple with the realities of racism until we think of them on this register. What I mean is this. If you think that racism is just a set of beliefs about people who look a certain way or exhibit a certain pattern if you think that racism is just an ideology, right, a belief system, then what happens is I can sort of congratulate myself and say, well, I don't believe that. And, and I, believe, I believe you, right? I don't believe that. But you see, if you have this liturgical set of lenses on, now the question isn't just, what do you think about race X, Y, or Z? The question is, What rhythms and rituals and dispositions and practices have I given myself over to such that I have subtly and unconsciously learned a story about how I inhabit the world that is exclusionary, that centers my experience over others, right? All I want us to start thinking through is that racism is not something to be thought of on this intellectual register of ideas. It's all about the way my heart has been apprenticed. By the way, I would also say that's true of gender, right? The way men are subtly taught how to inhabit the world is still so very, very different than the way women are taught to subtly inhabit the world. And we need to interrogate those practices, if you will. Okay. So you are what you love, right? Because you are centered in your heart's longings and desires, and those are apprenticed by practices. That's why you might not love what you think, right? Because we might not realize all the ways that we've given our heart over to rival rituals and routines that were liturgies without us realizing it. So Now let's come back to the founding sort of principle that I want us to get to. This is why worship is the heart of discipleship. Now I wonder if you can see why I'm making that point. What we are doing when we gather as the people of God around word and table is also not primarily an informational encounter, right? Right? Think of it this way. When we gather as the people of God in worship, it is not primarily so that we can walk away with a new set of ideas from the sermon. Peter is a fantastic preacher, and I'm all for good preaching. All I'm saying is that's actually just a slice of what God is doing in us and to us. Think of Christian worship is also not just something that you do, It's something in which God is doing something to us. And in particular, what I would say is by giving ourselves, especially in historic Christian worship, like you celebrate here at La Grave, there is an arc of the gospel story being rehearsed over and over and over again in such a way that it is seeping down into your bones. It is sinking into your heart. You are apprenticing your heart's desires to the story of God and Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that's whether or not you remember the sermon. You should remember the sermon. But that's happening whether or not you remember the sermon. Um, so what I want, I want to encourage you with two things and, and then we'll open it up for some, some conversation. The first is, if, if you kind of fit this new set of glasses and you look at your just kind of everyday life through this lens of liturgical analysis, let's call it, you need to sort of take stock of what you do, not just what you think, right? So think of it as taking a liturgical audit of your life. What are the rhythms and rituals and routines that in a typical week or a typical month or a typical year, what are the rhythms, rituals, and routines that I am giving myself over to that maybe before I never saw liturgically? What story do those practices carry? What subtle ways are they training me to love something? What kind of person are they turning me into? And you take this liturgical audit of your life and realize, oh, okay, wow. This is a very freighted and fraught practice I'm engaged in, right? By the way, I I would say this. The best way to do a liturgical audit is with somebody that's not you that you trust. (laughs) Uh, um, uh, in, In my case, that's my wife, Deanna, who's always very happy to point out all of my sort of uh, 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 heart miscalibrations because she loves me. Uh, The reason I say that is sometimes the the things that are most formative for you will also be the things that are closest to you. And do you notice how the thing, you know, I've got my hand on my heart here. And the fact is right now, my hand and my heart are not within my own purview. I can't see it. (laughs) You can, but I can't. So sometimes we need each other to help recognize that. But then, Constructively, and this is this, I wish we had more time for this, but constructively, I want you to now bring that same lens and say, this is what's at stake when we gather as the people of God in worship. What's going on in worship? God is restoring our hearts because he is restoring our habits. There is a kind of formation. This is, this is, um, okay, I'm going to stop with this. At the heart of, reformed conviction about worship, and this is so non-negotiable, at the heart of reformed conviction about worship is that God is the primary actor, not us. We don't go to worship to show God something. We answer the call to worship Because God is already there ahead of us and is going to move in us and on us and through us. God is the primary actor in worship, which is exactly why God can be doing something in us and through us and to us in worship, whether or not we feel it whether or not we're thinking about it, whether or not we're into it. There's a sense in which, this will sound scandalous, but there's a kind of virtue to going through the motions when God is behind the motions. I will say as a parent of teenagers, you know, 10 years ago, that was a huge encouragement and conviction because even if they were sort of slumped over and, you know, not into it, I know that they were really, the story is being apprenticed into their imagination, because they are going through the story. Okay, I have to stop. Um, We have about five minutes for questions. I'm sorry, that that was kind of a bit of a fire hose. Uh, Questions, comments, anything we could talk about? Don't be shy. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry? Did they go through the door? So, I kind of want to leave that open for you if I can. Uh, it's, 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 um, there are multiple characters and they go different ways. Uh, um, but I don't want to be uh, too many spoiler alerts. Yeah, <laughs> Did they go through the door? Other questions? Or, or observations even? You know, one of the things that I think is helpful to do is I tried to name cultural liturgies. The mall is a cultural liturgy. Social media or phones is a cultural liturgy. You could start, it's a, it's a kind of a, exercise that you can engage in uh, uh, conversationally because cultural liturgies are very contextual right and generational so we all need to think about that for ourselves but others questions criticisms worries yes Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. So everyone is shaped by a liturgy. This is exactly right. In fact, some ways this project for me began, you know, in the Reformed tradition, especially the Kyperian tradition, we have often emphasized that every human being has a worldview. Right. Every human being has sort of a fundamental set of beliefs and convictions that govern how they live in the world. And I think that's true. What I'm suggesting, though, is that even more, even deeper than that, every human being is animated by loves for something ultimate that they are living towards. Right. This is on the register of how we live. And every human God, God made us as liturgical creatures. God made us as ritual animals. I think any of you who have raised young children know this. Little kids love ritual. They absolutely love ritual. Do you know what I mean? Like they love Advent stuff at home. They love who gets to light the candles. Kids love ritual. In our house, if you did something twice, it was a tradition. Do you know what I mean? It's like, no, no, no. Like we had second day of school cake for 20 years because somehow uh, they're like, we're seizing on this. We are, human beings are liturgical animals. Why? Because we are creatures of habit. And the creator who made us knows that. He built it in. So that's one of the reasons why I think, do you, uh, I don't know what your communion liturgy uh, looks like, but I'm going to guess that right before you uh, partake of the elements, perhaps the pastor says, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Okay, the gifts of God for the people of God. What are the great gifts that the Spirit gives us to transform us? The sacraments are amongst those because they are habit-forming. They shape us. They transform our practice. Uh, um, And that's God sort of conceding or, or If you will, as Calvin liked to say, stooping down to meet us as the creatures of habit that we are, he's not—he's not surprised by that. One of the things I think, as Protestants, we're kind of allergic to the language of ritual because we're like, "Mm, that sounds Roman Catholic. That's like we're performing things for God, Uh, um, and we need to like really kind of set aside that allergy because we're not talking about doing things to earn God's favor. What we're actually talking about is up undertaking practices that God has given us for our transformation. Do you see the difference? It's not so much, I'm going to do this to show God something. It's rather, God has given us these communal practices, and we are doing those so that the Spirit can do something in us. Those practices are the gifts of the Spirit for creatures of habit. Yeah, great point. Time for one more, maybe. Yes, ma'am. Great question. What's the difference between vice and addiction? Not much, actually. And and I would say, by, this, is, um, uh, this is really, really important. Uh, um, I, I would say, we live in a cultural moment in which we think, oh, these sorts of things are addictions, and these other things are just vices. Almost all of our vices have the shape of addiction. And uh, um, if you want to talk addiction, right? So what happens in addiction is you have the illusion, you maybe start something as, uh, as a matter of choice and free will, but what happens is is now your dependency gets so inscribed that you are sort of enslaved to the thing and you can't be, who, can't be without it, right? Uh, um, uh, I think that is such a powerful lens for understanding the way late capitalist culture works, honestly. <laughs> Like, so much of our culture is actually bent on on getting us addicted to things. And the way out of addiction, this is where, you know, there, there's a reading in which the big book, uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, is actually a very, very subtle transformation of the Christian virtue tradition. Translation of the Christian virtue tradition, because you also can't think your way out of your addiction. So... When when the alcoholic goes to a meeting, they're not going to the meeting to get information. It's the going to the meeting that is the practice that is recalibrating their desire. So I think it's a great parallel, actually, to thinking about the way God liberates us in worship. This is worship is kind of God's meeting, <laughs> do you know I mean? And it's the place where we are being apprenticed into other ways of being. And so. Uh, uh, that's not an, enough to say. My colleague, um, Rebecca DeYoung, Rebecca Canindyte DeYoung, who maybe has been here or should come here, she has a marvelous book called The Glittering Vices, which is a great analysis of some of this too, uh, which would be very helpful. Okay, I've taken too much of your time. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious God, you are um, so good to us because you know that we are creatures. You have made us to be uh, in your likeness, and yet you also know our finitude, you know our weakness. You can sympathize with it as a high priest who has lived in our bodies. And so we are grateful for all the gifts you give us in the body of Christ so that we can be the kinds of creatures who learn how to love you and love what you love. Help us to enter into the practices of worship, know that you are in them and you are transforming us through them. For we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for our Growing You session. If you'd like to continue this discussion, join us next week as Reverend Mike Hogaboom and Growing You coordinator Emily Redder continue this conversation about our heart habits. How do the elements of your daily liturgy form your spirituality? Are there ways you would like to shift those habits?